Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am continuing with Matthew 12 in this audio. I'm going to start with verse 31. The previous section was concerning Jesus being accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons by the ruler of Beelzebul. And that sets the stage for this discussion of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is exactly that. Giving credit to the devil for the works of the Holy Spirit. Verse 31 in Matthew 12, because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Because of what? Because of the Pharisees accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul and actually saying that he had a demon himself. Because of that, Jesus is telling them, hey, you're not going to ever be forgiven for that because that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The NIV Study Bible, as well as Gillian Clark, define blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as attributing to Satan Christ authenticating miracles done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the parallel passage in Mark clinched this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mark 3.22 says this, The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul in him. He drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Mark 3.30 says this, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of two things. One is actually being possessed of the devil. And number two, using the devil to drive out devils. They never called him the devil himself, but they came pretty close. Said he was possessed by the devil and was using the devil to cast out demons. Well, this is how Jesus replied to that in Mark, same chapter, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says this, I assure you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they may blaspheme. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And there Mark makes it explicit. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit, that's why Jesus said that his statement against blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and that that blasphemy blasphemy would never be forgiven because he was saying, because the Pharisees were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit. Now, this should be of some comfort to those many Christians who are burdened down with guilt because they've sinned against God and they think that God's never going to forgive them. The verse itself right here says that people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. That covers just about everything except saying Jesus is full of the devil. And, of course, the average Christian, the Christian who's burdened down by a guilt feeling that he's blasphemed against the Holy Spirit is not going to be saying Jesus is full of the devil. People will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. So if people act, if they get mad at God and, and, and blaspheme God and say, God, I hate you. I even knew one guy, a Christian, I hate to even say it. He says, God, you can go to hell. His life had fallen apart. He's blaming God for everything. But he came back and Jesus forgave him. That's one thing. But when you look right at the at the Son of God performing miracles by the Holy Spirit, and you say the devil's doing it, and you have no intention of forgiving that, uh, of of re- repenting of that, or recanting that statement, no, you, you've you've had it. You've secured for yourself uh, a place eternally in hell. Now, there's an interesting question here. What happens if somebody blasphemes against the Spirit like the Pharisee and later realized he was wrong and asked for forgiveness? I think that what Jesus means is if you continue to blaspheme against the Spirit and continue to believe that I'm casting out demons by the prince of demons, you're not going to be forgiven. But I don't think he means that if somebody says, no, I was wrong, you're the son of God, that Jesus wouldn't forgive him. I don't believe that. In other words, I believe this verse has been woefully misinterpreted and overapplied. Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. 
Well, speaking a word against the Son of Man is speaking a word against the Messiah who is veiled in his incarnate flesh. He's not obviously God. I mean, people look at Jesus and they say, this is a carpenter. He comes from Nazareth. He went to the wedding feast at Cana. He was one of the guests. I mean, he was, he was a man. And so his divinity was, was veiled. And so if you speak a word against that, that's going to be forgiven you. But when you see that Jesus going around and in the name of the Father, making lepers clean, making blind men see, and deaf, dumb, mutes talk, and you're still going to say it's from the devil? No, you're not going to be forgiven for that. that that's, that's a no-no, because then when you see that, uh, divinity is not veiled. The Holy Spirit is openly God, and you're openly trashing God, blaspheming God. You're not going to be forgiven either in this age or the one to come. Most people take that as being this current age on earth, and then the one to come is the age after Jesus returns and sets up the final state. I don't believe that's what he was talking about. I think he meant in this age, which is the pre-Messianic age, or in the age to come, which is the age, the Messianic age, which he was going to establish after Pentecost. And I'm not alone in that. John Gill and Adam Clark agree with me. In fact, they say that this a this is use of the word, that this age being the Jewish state and the one to come as being the times of Messiah, was a common usage among the Jews at that time. Matthew 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. And make means assert that. Either assert that the tree is good and its fruit good, or assert that the tree is bad and its fruit bad. What's the context here? The context was the casting out of demons that Jesus was doing in the Pharisees, telling, saying that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebul. And what Jesus is saying is, look, if casting out demons is good, and you Pharisees have to concede that casting out demons is good because you're doing it too. If casting out demons is good, that's the tree. The fruit is good. What I'm doing is good. I'm casting out demons too. So if the tree, fruit, the tree is good and the fruit is good, I'm good. So your accusations against me are nonsense. On the other hand, if you want to assert that the tree is bad, that casting out demons is bad, and therefore then that means uh, that the Pharisees who are casting out demons, that's the fruit of this tree, uh, what they're doing is bad, and so therefore you're just you're guilty. By your own words, you're guilty. So either I'm innocent or you're guilty. Take your choice. This is the logical contradiction the Pharisees had gotten themselves into, and Jesus exposed to, exposed their logical contradiction. And by ultimately saying, look, Jesus's fruit is obviously good. How could the Pharisees say Jesus is evil? Because if the tree's good, if the fruit's good, the tree that produced the fruit has to be good. Jesus was doing good. He was casting out demons. So therefore, he could not be doing it by Beelzebul. Jesus continues in verse 34, Matthew 12. Brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Now here we see... Jesus calling the Pharisees snakes. That's the same language that John the Baptist used on them when he was doing his ministry. You brood, you, you, you family of snakes. Jesus was not little Jesus, meek and mild. He denounced malevolent evil to its face. Now, this is a good verse for those who want to misapply the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said to turn the other cheek. Jesus meant by that, don't take private revenge on people. He did not mean that we're not supposed to stand up to injustice and to, to expose false teaching that was driving people into bondage, which is what these Pharisees were producing. So anyway, he stood up to them. He had a lot of courage. He constantly stood up to the Pharisees. In fact, it has been pointed out by many that 
he deliberately went to the Pharisees and deliberately found one of their traditions so he could trash it, so he could so he could contradict it, so he could expose it as not being godly. Now, he is saying, how can you speak good things when you're evil? Again, the idea of the good fruit, good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit metaphor here. And he says, uh, you're evil, so you can't produce good fruit because you're an evil tree and you're not producing good fruit. You're producing bad fruit. You can't speak good things. You're, the fruit of your heart is evil. And then he shifts the metaphor a little bit and he says, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. In other words, because it is obvious what you're doing is evil, the goods that you produce are evil, the fruit that you produce is evil, that means, and the words that you say are evil, that means that what's that the heart that produced those words is evil too. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you are evil people. I think about that woman who used to work for Joseph Good, the Messianic Jew that used to be on Trinity Broadcasting Network years ago, and, and she told me, she says, uh, the Pharisees were good people. Jesus right here says, when you are evil, how can you speak good things when you are evil? He calls them evil, and they killed him on the cross. How could anybody say something that stupid? Anyway, this is a good good idea if you want to see if somebody's good, and look at their words, and look at their fruit, their deeds, and their words, and sooner or later you can make a judgment. Now, they might hide it for a while, but sooner or later it's going to come out. Here's another place. It's not a parallel, not a synoptic parallel, but it's another place in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus says this, A good man produces good out of the, out of the good storeroom of his heart. An evil man produces evil out of the evil storeroom, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. You've heard that expression, sticks and stones can, hurt, can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That little saying is totally bogus, because words can hurt. Words can be evil. What did James say about the tongue can set on a can set on a forest on, on fire? Words are extremely important what you say, and that's why politicians ought to be more careful about what they say, and that's why everybody ought to be more careful about what they say because bad you have evil intent. Your bad words will prove that that your heart is intent, and people are going to know it, and bad things are going to result from that usually. Matthew 12, verse 35, a good man produces good things from his storeroom of good, from his heart, basically. And an evil man produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. Again, Jesus is trashing the Pharisees, pointing out to them that they're evil and that what they're producing is evil. He is still defending himself against the charge of blasphemy because he's saying, look, I'm producing good things from my storeroom of good. I'm healing people. I'm driving demons out. And how can you say I'm evil when I'm doing that? But you people are opposed to the good. So that means since your fruit, you're opposed to good fruits, that means your heart must be evil, must be opposed to good things and therefore evil. This is the, the general scriptural principle of the good tree and the good fruit. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, Matthew 7, verse 16 through 20. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. And that's a clear thing. Like I say, sooner or later, you can't hide evil fruit. It's going gonna, it's gonna to show up eventually. Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word that they speak. And again, the context of this is he's talking about Pharisees who have condemned him for casting out demons by Beelzebul. Now that word careless 
can mean light conversation of vain discourse, and the idea would be this. Look, if God is going to judge you for just flippant words that you weren't thinking about that were not too edifying, well, he's certainly going to judge you even more. It's like an a fortiori argument. If he can condemn light conversation, vain words like that, well, he's certainly going to condemn intentional words of malice where you accuse the Messiah of being possessed of the devil. But the idea of that word, every careless word they speak, it also has the idea of wicked and injurious. So then it would read, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every wicked and injurious word they speak, in which case Jesus would directly be talking about what the Pharisees did to him, saying he was casting out demons by Beelzebul. Now this idea, the, the Greek word apparently is ambiguous according to Adam Clark. In fact, Clark to point that out, says that 10 manuscripts that he has or he has knowledge of had changed the word for careless, argon, the Greek word, into poneron, evil, because the words are so close together that the, t- the scribes switched the words thinking, because when they were thinking careless, they were thinking evil. So, like in la- all, every language has translation problems. So this word careless can have an idea of wicked and injurious. But either way, we're going to be judged for that. And by the way, People love to put people under condemnation. They say, oh, you said some flippant thing. Therefore, God's going to get you for that kind of idea. Well, listen, on the day of judgment, remember you've got a lawyer. His name is Jesus. He's going to forgive you. His blood covers all your sins for whatever. Jesus here is not talking about Christians who are justified by the blood of Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. He is talking about Pharisees who accused them of having a demon. It's a big, big difference. Matthew 12, verse 37. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, he's going to the idea of how important words are because they reflect what's in your heart. The idea of acquitted, it could be a proverbial expression, you'll be acquitted by your speech, could refer to a, a rule of procedure in Jewish courts that if you testify properly, you'll be acquitted, and condemned being the same thing. But at any rate, what Jesus is referring to here is you're going to be condemned because you blasphemed the Holy Spirit, because you said, I was casting out demons by Beelzebul. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. This is King James here. We would see a sign from thee. And we know from a parallel passage in, let's see, where is it? Uh, Luke 11, verse 16. And these are different Pharisees. And others, says Luke 11:16, and others tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. In other words, they didn't expect him to be able to produce a sign, and so therefore they thought that they were going to be able to say, Sir, he's not the Messiah. So certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Apparently, the old Pharisees who had tried to condemn Jesus for casting out demons by Beelzebub were replaced by these Pharisees. And this new group of Pharisees were going to try to get him by asking for a sign that they thought he couldn't do. Now, what they wanted to see was a spectacular miracle. They'd already seen tons of miracles, and you would think, I used to read this and think, well, how in the world could they ask for that after having seen these incredible miracles? Leprous cleansed, incurable, incurable diseases cleansed, blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, dumb people talking. Oh, no, they got to see a sign. Well, a messianic sign was a huge sign that was kind of earth-shattering, Preferably in the sky, for example. Here's a Luke 11:16, And others tempted him, sought of him a sign from heaven. In other words, a sign in the sky. So the Pharisees, they had to 
concede that Jesus' miracles were real. And if you'll notice, in all the rabbinic opposition to Jesus then and afterwards, nobody ever denied that Jesus did the miracles. They couldn't. There were too many people who saw the miracles. Now, present-day Dumkoff liberals might deny it, but they are so dumb that I don't really care what they think. But the, but the rabbis who were filled with hatred for Jesus, they didn't deny that Jesus' miracles were real. But they did say they weren't big enough. He can't be the Messiah because his miracles aren't big enough. Well, Jesus said, I'm not, look, I'm not going to give a sign to people as hard-hearted as you like that to prove I'm the Messiah. I've already done plenty to prove that I'm the Messiah. He said, but I'm going to give you a sign from history. So he gives the sign of Jonah and the Queen of Sheba. Uh, he uses these two historical examples to back, sort of like, to point back to a type and to, and to tell them that he was going to fulfill those types as the Messiah. Okay, so let's go to Matthew 12, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas, a Jonah. First of all, Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. He's already called them a brood of vipers. Now, he, he really used words to really, really flatter his audience, did he not? An evil and adulterous generation. The question is, is were they physically adulterous or spiritually adulterous or both? The NIV study Bible said that Jesus is not referring to anything physical here. John Gill says that, no, they were physically adulterous. It appeared not only in their polygamy and their frequent divorces on trivial occasions, but by their criminal conversation with other women besides their wives and so forth. Well, maybe so, but typically physical adultery goes along with spiritual adultery. I don't have any problem with saying it's both. Here's an example of how they were spiritually adulterous. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. As a wife treacherously departs from her husband, she's spiritually unfaithful. Of course, this is a common metaphor in the Old Testament. The Old Testament Israel was a, an adulterous woman. That happened. You hear that over and over again. And so that's probably what Jesus is talking to him. Here, you have left your God and have gone whoring after other idols. And now you're asking me for a sign. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to give you a sign because you don't deserve it. That's the implication. But I will tell you about Jonah. As a matter of fact, Jesus never did give him a messianic sign from heaven. He did give him other miracles and healing and so forth. But he never gave one of these earth-shattering signs from heaven that they were asking for. But he did give him the sign of the prophet Jonah. How was that? Well, Jesus explains in Matthew 12, verse 40, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the famous story of Jonah, and it's not a whale, by the way. The King James has whale, NIV has big fish, uh, but it's a large aquatic creature. And let me just say right now, for all of those who doubt that can happen, how many crazy things we read about on the Internet, and people believe it with no trouble, and they oh, I can't believe that somebody could live three days in a big fish. Yes, they could. That doesn't surprise me at all. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, or the big fish's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The idea here is, is that Jonah, who was less than Jesus, he was a prophet but not the Son of God, he was buried for three days and three nights, and then he came forth again from the whale. He preached to a rebellious and wicked generation of people in Nineveh, and they repented. Likewise, I am going to be three days and three nights, not under the ocean, but under the earth, and I'm going to come forth, and I'm going to preach repentance to people, and they're going to listen to me, and my church is going to be started. That's kind of what the idea is here. Now, let's take this phrase, three days and three nights. Jesus was crucified probably on a Friday afternoon. He spent all day Saturday in the tomb, and he rose Sunday morning, which is about 
part of a day Friday, a full day Saturday, and a part of a day Sunday. Now, the Jews, whenever they were reckoned days, they would take a part of a day and take that as a whole day. So that three days is no problem, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, three days. But the phrase three nights is a little bit problematical to Western eyes because we tend to be a little bit more mathematically precise and we say there were not three nights. There was Friday night and there was Saturday night, but it was not three nights. Well, the answer to that is that it was a customary Jewish way of talking. A day and a night refers to part of a 24-hour day. And in that case, there were three parts of a 24-hour day, so there were three days and three nights. It's just, it's just language. It's nothing for a liberal to get all upset about and say, see there, the Bible's got contradictions in it. No, the Bible does not have contradictions in it. Now, here are some scriptures predicting the resurrection of the dead from the Old Testament. Therefore, Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for that you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, and hell means death there, Hades. You will not leave my, this is a King James I'm reading here, you will, and this is, of course is referred to Jesus as quoted in Acts, Jesus is going to rise again from the dead. It was quoted from the Old Testament. Jesus knew that. And he's telling, basically he's telling them, hey, I'm going to rise again from the dead. Now, he, I don't know why he had He must have been because of his divinity that he knew it was going to be three days and three nights. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. This is talking about what God allowed Jesus to be bruised on the cross. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. In other words, he's going to rise again. He shall prolong his days. He's going to rise again. So, this was not the first time that Jesus predicted his resurrection three days after his death. In John 2.19, he said this, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. So, Jesus knows that he's going to be resurrected. Notice in this verse here that this is a prediction of his resurrection, although it's not explicit. He says, The Son of Man for three days and three nights will be in the heart of the earth, and the logical implication from that is is after three days and three nights he will not be in the heart of the earth which is the same what thing as saying he will be resurrected now you want a sign pharisees you want an earth-shaking sign let's try a resurrection let's see what what that'll do for you and of course they didn't believe that either because their hearts were full of evil and excrement spiritual excrement matthew 12 verse 41 the men of nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. You know the story of Jonah, how he went to Nineveh. Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater, says Jonah is lesser than Jesus. But Jonah preached, and the Ninevites were evil, just like the Pharisees, and the Ninevites repented. Well, if a lesser preacher than Jesus can preach to evil people and they can repent, why can't you Pharisees who are here? who are hearing the preaching of someone much greater than Jonah, why can't you repent? The reason is, is because you are more evil than the Ninevites. And therefore, the men of Nineveh will rise in judgment and condemn you at the judgment. Now, that could be rise in judgment at like, like a court trial. The metaphor being the Pharisees on trial and then in court, the witness rises because it was typical for, it was traditional. That witness rose when they gave their statements. So the men of Nineveh rise in, in, in the court room trial of the Pharisees and said, you're guilty. You didn't repent like we did. Or it could mean the judgment at the end of the world. Either way, the point is you Pharisees are worse than the people of Nineveh. You want a sign? Well, let me say, here's a sign. Jonah and the people of Nineveh. Matthew 12, verse 42, Jesus continues, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation. Shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she 
came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus, of course, is greater than Solomon. Solomon was quite a character. He had gardens. He was a great architect. He had trade all over the world. He had a port down there in a lot, and he was trading up there with Tyre and Sidon. And he was wealthy and had a thousand concubines. And the whole ancient Near East was at peace because he was the big dog in the ancient Near East. I mean, he was really something. He also was somewhat of a scientist uh, and a philosopher. And he wrote all those proverbs. And the Queen of Sheba, that's who he's talking about here. The Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba came down there, came up from Arabia, probably southwest Arabia in present-day Yemen, but wherever, down there, and came up to, and said she came up in another, not here, but another passage. In 1 Kings 10, 1, it says, Queen of Sheba, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. She wanted to ask about this Yahweh that Solomon was, was supposed to be serving. And the point is, is that, look, if this pagan queen could come listen to Solomon, who's not the son of God, why can't you so-called spiritual Pharisees who have the oracles of Yahweh, why can't you listen to someone who's greater than Solomon, namely the Son of Man, the Messiah? So you're going to be judged, too, by the Queen of Sheba. She's going to say, you should have believed. I did. Why didn't you? Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he says, I will return into my house from whence I came out, and when he has come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goes, he, and takes with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so, it shall be unto this wicked generation. And by the way, this generation, this generation is a common term that Jesus used to refer to the damned generation of the Pharisees, the condemned generation of the Pharisees, and it's used in, in Matthew 23. This generation, this generation, over and over again as he pronounces the so-called seven woes on this wicked generation. That's important when you, because that sets up the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Jesus there in Matthew 24 says, This generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. That phrase, this generation, is very key. Because if all the events of the Olivet Discourse take place before this generation, the wicked generation of the Pharisees, shall pass away, that means that we must interpret the Olivet Discourse in a preterist fashion so that all those events of the Discourse took place before AD 70. Now this word garnished, it says the demon leaves, leaves the man, he comes back, and the man is compared to a house, and he comes back to his house, the man, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Garnished is old-fashioned King James for put in order, so it's basically all neat and ready for him to come back and live there again. Now, what does this mean? Why did Jesus say this? Well, I think that what he was saying, and this is uh, not just me saying this, a lot of people say this that Jesus cast a whole bunch of demons out of Israel. But the Pharisees were so evil that they were like a man who had been cleansed of a demon, and then he just swept his house and made, made, himself, made himself prepared for the demon to come back. And Jesus is saying, well, if you're going to do that, Israel, when the demons come back, it's going to be seven times worse, seven being the, being the number of divine perfection. He says, you think you were possessed with demons before. When they come back, it's going to be a lot worse. It's going to be complete demonization. And so I think what Jesus was saying here is that you, Israel, having had the demons driven out of you by me, when I leave and you don't repent, those demons are going to come back and they're going to find a welcome, nice, set-in-order house that's swept. 
It's empty. There's nothing to get in the way. And those demons are going to come in, and they're and you're really going to be full of the devil. So I know some people take it as to referring to uh, individual people who have demons cast out, and then they don't repent. The demons come back seven times worse. And I wouldn't doubt that. But I think the original reference, though, is to is to that wicked generation he's talking about, because that's the context of what he's talking about, this wicked generation. Because he says, even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation in verse 45. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about individual demoniacs who don't repent. Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50, and we'll finish it up here. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brother and brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother your mother and your brethren stand without, desiring to speak with you. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister. This is a great Mother's Day text. I think that all preachers ought to preach this on Mother's Day and Father's Day too for that matter. Now, Jesus is not meaning to reject his natural family. This is what it sounds like. I got time for you guys. Get out of here. I'm working. But what he's trying to do is to show that his spiritual family was more important than his earthly family. And that is something that every Christian ought to really drive home deep in their heart. Because one of the deepest human inclinations and motives is to please your family. I mean, we just can't get around that. That's just the way it is. I don't even care how dysfunctional your family was. It's still there. And at some point, you might have to be—you might have to realize that Jesus came not to bring peace to the earth, but a sword to, to set father against son and mother against daughter, and so forth and so on. And here's just another example. Jesus is not going to stop his ministry for for these people. Now, we, for his family. Now we learn more about this little incident from the synoptic parallels. If we go to Mark 3, verse 21, and when his friends, or the NIV says his family, when his family heard of it, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he's beside himself. They probably went from Nazareth. They, his brothers and his mother were from Nazareth, which is about 30 miles south of Capernaum. They probably took the trip up there because they heard of all these miracles being done, and they said, man, what's going on here? This, our, our son and our brother is nuts. He's stirring up the murderous opposition of the Pharisees. He's going to get himself killed. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 32 says this, Then there came then his brother and, and his mother, and standing without, uh, without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. Now what are some options as to what were the possible motives of Mary and Jesus' brothers? Well, they perhaps wanted to see Jesus to relax from his heavy schedule. He's working himself to death. And they didn't really think he was out of his mind. They were just exaggerating a little bit, perhaps. But the NIV study Bible and Gill take that option. He, they wanted Jesus to relax. Or maybe, this is my option, maybe he was literally, maybe they thought he was literally crazy. The enemies of Christ were saying he was out of his mind, says Adam Clark. And so maybe his families actually believed that, believed the Pharisees that he was crazy. Or maybe they went with motives of pride. We're here, and we're here to see the great teacher because we're his family. And they wanted to show everyone they were, were related to the great teacher. I somehow doubt that. And this is my preference, option number four. They wanted to point out to him that he was in great danger. Maybe even to point out the conspiracies that already formed against him. Now, the reason I say that is because I've seen many missionary families' attitudes toward their missionary sons or daughters are very similar. You can't go over to the mission and say, what about us? What about, what about us, your family? We gave you life. And here you are going off to the heathen in Africa or wherever it is, 
and leaving us behind. A great example of this is the great missionary Bargafrey Bruchko. He went, where was it, to, to South America somewhere, Colombia, I think it was. Uh, and he was from Canada, and his mother had missionary meetings in, in their little church, and he went to all those meetings, and he got inspired to be a missionary. And when it came time for him to go down there to be a missionary, who was screaming the loudest against it? His mother. Happens all the time, folks. And you, if you are dedicated to serving Christ, you better get ready for it, and you better get ready to deal with it properly, which is spiritual things come before natural things. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. God will take care of your natural relations. He'll let you be able to de bury your dead and to do all the family things that you need to do because he's supernatural, he's sovereign, but you've got to seek his kingdom first. Now, who are the brethren of Jesus? This is a good thing because, you know, the Catholics, Roman Catholics say that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she was a virgin before she married Joseph, and she was a virgin after she married vir Joseph. And so the question arises, then where did all Jesus' brothers come from if she was a virgin? And the Catholics say, well, they were cousins and that kind of thing. Or or they were step-half-brothers, step-brothers, because Joseph had a previous wife. Her name is said to be Esca. And uh, so that they had children, well, I'm not going to get into that. I think that if you think that Mary was a perpetual virgin, please come see me because I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona I'm trying to sell. It says that the Mary and the brethren were without. That means either Jesus was indoors or he was within a, a group or crowd and they were standing outside the crowd. And somebody, one, said to Jesus, your mother and brother is here. That could be a bystander. And that could... Or it could have been one of Jesus' disciples. If it was a bystander, his possible motives could have been he just wanted to tell him, hey, your mother and brother here. Or he was actually trying to interrupt him to see if Jesus might be charged with neglecting his natural relations. Who knows? The disciples that were with him, they could have been the twelve, or it could have been all of his followers. The twelve had been sent out on a mission, and I don't know where they are now, to be honest with you. I don't, I'm not sure anybody does. And Jesus said, look, these are the ones who are my brothers and brothers. It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean do it perfectly, of course, because nobody can do it perfectly. But it means people who generally have a, a, a desire and a goal and a motivation to serve their Father and to conform to his will. That's who's Jesus' mother and brother and sisters in our spiritual family. In fact, hey, I just had somebody just the other day say, you know, sometimes... Your spiritual brothers and sisters are closer to you than your natural brothers and sisters. And these are people who had terrible family problems. One of them, their daughter had abandoned them for 12 years when she was about 20, became a transvestite, started putting all kind of conditions on her return. You've got to call me a he and all this nonsense, you know. Yeah, family can really be a pain sometimes. you got to follow Jesus. Let Jesus take care of your family relations. And with that, I am finished with Matthew 12. We'll take up Matthew 13 in the next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>